Welcome to Managing Sustainable Futures. Today, we are excited to have Dr. Heidi Jo Newberg, professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and a NASA NIAC fellow. Dr. Newberg's pioneering work in astrophysics is revolutionizing our approach to exploring the cosmos. In this episode, she will unravel her journey in astrophysics, her innovative work on Dicer technology, and how her research is bridging the gap between the vast expanse of space and sustainable futures on Earth. Okay, today I'm interviewing uh, Heidi Newberg, uh, Professor of Department of Physics uh, and Applied Physics and Astronomy at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So I'm going to begin, Heidi, with uh, some background on you. So tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your background in science, what drew you to the fascinating world of astrophysics, and how you have evolved in your incredible journey of discovery in this area. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, when I, was, uh, when I was younger, I just really liked puzzles, you know, figuring something out, trying to figure out how this works or how this, uh, you know, illusion worked or how a puzzle worked. And, um, you know, when I got to the end of high school, uh, they asked me what I wanted to do. And I had no idea, like most high school students, I decided, well, I want to do something math and science. And so my father told me, uh, well, then you should do engineering because at least then you can get a job. <laughs> and so I actually started uh, my college uh, at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute as an engineer. And mm. when I got to the end of my freshman year, I, I, I looked at the courses I was going to have to take, lumped parameters, systems, and fluid dynamics, and I really didn't want to take them. <laughs> and that's when I realized that there's the difference between engineers and scientists is engineers want to know how you do something, and scientists want to know why why it mm. works. And so mm. the how versus the why, and I, I realized I was really a why person. Why mm. is this? And and so I switched into physics at that point and kind of went all the way through. Mm. Um, so I went to graduate school at Berkeley, which had everything, you know, and having no idea what I wanted to do. And um, it, when I was looking for a research advisor, um, I really didn't want to be in the fourth sub-basement of the Burge building. I could not imagine spending five or six or seven years of my life down in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had, I, I uh, got a summer position working for um, Richard Muller, who had an office space right on, on the hill overlooking the, the bay with the windows and and uh, using computers and going out to observatories in the beautiful mountaintops. And um, that was just, that was just the greatest. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just really, I, I kind of wonder whether I could have gone all different ways. I don't know. I suppose I could have gone any direction, but I really, I really liked the astronomy and mm. that's kind of where I've, I've stayed. And I, and I, of course I started out thinking I was going to teach that was I always wanted to teach and doing research and it really um and it was when I was in graduate school that I I I discovered how really fascinating it is to learn to try to learn something no one else knows. 
Mm. I mean, it's just a super rush, you know, <laughs> to, 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 to discover something no one else knows. I mean, to push the edge of knowledge. And, and so that's when I really um, decided I, I, I wanted to do research. Plus, it seemed like an easier job than teaching. But yeah. so, so tell me a little bit more about that spark of discovery, the kind of uh, adrenaline rush that comes with finding something new that nobody in the world has ever. T- talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, a lot of research, I, I find it very sort of mentally destabilizing because, you know, when you're doing homework, there's a <laughs> beginning and there's an end. And however it turns out with your homework or your exam or your class or whatever you're taking, it's over when it's over, you know, it's done. And there's a right answer and a wrong answer and you're there. And with research, it's very open-ended. You know, you're always trying to figure something out and you never know whether what the direction you're going is going to get anywhere. You don't know if what you're doing is going to be useful and, and there's no answer in the back of the book and no one can tell you if you're right or not. You have to keep checking yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so every once in a while, you know, you think you've discovered something. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those things in your career that uh, you have done. I mean, I met you at the NASA <laughs> NIAC symposium. These mm-hmm. are the, this is sort of the, the brainiest of the brainiest among the NASA crowd. And yeah, we're out there. We're out there. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's begin with that project uh, okay. that you're doing for the NASA uh, innovative advanced concepts group uh, mm-hmm. and tell us what the short-term and long-term goals are uh, of this project and a little bit about the science behind it. So I, uh, this, this project is um, very unusual for me. It's a very far from the field of which that I am known for, uh, which is in the structure of the Milky Way galaxy and sort of more standard astronomy projects. Um, this is more of a hardware project trying to design a telescope that could find um, all of the habitable exoplanets closer than uh, 33 light years to the mm. Earth. So all the close ones where you could imagine sending a probe or communicating with it on human time scales. But the way mm. I got to it was not actually through that science goal, uh, surprisingly enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I got through it uh, to it because... Um, a man named uh, Tom Ditto walked into my office one day. And Tom Ditto is a very interesting person. He's been a NIAC fellow several times in the past. Um, his background and his training is in art and film. And mm. he um, he kind of uh, morphed from doing art and film to doing some entrepreneurial sort of inventor work. He likes to putter in the laboratory and figure things out. And he knows how to make holograms and, and gra- he's been working on gratings and different versions of gratings. And um, he told me he, uh, about this telescope that he designed. I mean, he at first had to convince me he wasn't just a crackpot. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes his shoes doesn't match. He's got the long gray hair and, you know, the tie dye shirts. Okay. Anyway, um, he has invented this new kind of telescope where his idea was to collect all of the light with a, a big diffraction grating. So most of the time when we look at things with telescopes, we collect the light with a big mirror, you know, mm. and we focus the light with a big mirror. And he had this idea that mirrors are big, bulky, heavy things, and to send them up in space is kind of hard. Um, and that 
you know, eventually maybe what we can do is make this diffraction grating, which you can roll up on a roll and send it to space and unfurl it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and collect a lot of light because the thing we want the most in telescopes is to collect a lot of light. Mm-hmm. And so his idea was that this was really the way to get big space telescopes up into up in the sky in the future. And then it's a very unusual design for a telescope. It's not, you know, something that anyone else is doing. And it took me really quite a long time to understand what it is that he was doing at all. In fact, he had to come up into my lab and build a little model in my lab. For me to, it's like, oh, I kind of see what you're doing now. Um, but anyway, I, I w- I've been studying it with him for a couple of years. And some of the things that he thought it would do, um, it doesn't do. I mean, one of the things he thought it would do was collect a lot of light mm-hmm. and uh, my student and I were able to show that um, that it collects that every time you make this grating bigger, the the way this telescope is designed, the the wavelength range of the light that you get becomes smaller. So you end up with more photons, more light in a smaller wavelength range, and so the total amount of light remains the same regardless of how big you make it. <laughs> and um, so, so, and the, and that the amount of light that you get is just based on the size of the, the focusing optic. So that was an interesting thing that we discovered. But another thing that he said it would do, which is to have this uh, very uh, good diffraction limit. So, you, if a diffraction limit tells you how uh, how fine grained the picture is that you're going to get of the sky, um, how many pixels you get in your in your image, and the diffraction limit of this does scale with the size of that grating. Um, so we were able to show that that part was actually true. And so that's why we, we were like, what, what would be the best thing to use this kind of telescope on? And we thought, oh, you know, the best thing would be probably to find Earth-like planets next to sun-like stars, a big problem people have been trying to solve. Um, and this thing maybe could do it, you know, because we could mm-hmm. get a big space telescope up there. We could... We could resolve an Earth from a sun out to a reasonable distance. So, so this seemed like a really cool idea. And um, my student and I really sat down and tried to design, well, how can we use this technology that Tom Ditto has kind of come up with to try to solve a problem that, um, that was really important? And mm-hmm. so that was kind of the beginning of this grant. So, so compared to the current telescopes that are out there, searching for exoplanets and life, uh, alien life. How does this compare in terms of power and reach and range? You mentioned something about 30 light years. Mm-hmm. It can search in a 30 light years. So the current technologies don't go that far? They do, but they don't go, they don't result. So there are, there are the, most of the exoplanets that have been discovered to date have been found because by something they call the transit method, where the, the, the planet goes in front of the star. So the planet goes between you and the star, and it makes the star a little bit dimmer. And so they see it because of that. But they're, the only planets that you can find uh, by that method are ones that go in front of the star. And most exoplanets are oriented that way, and they don't go in front of the star, and you can't find them. Mm. Um, and so the only way that you can kind of find all of the different orientations that exoplanets can orbit around their stars is if you can resolve it. If you can say the star is over here and the planet is over there. And 
Um, most exop- there are very few exoplanets that are resolved that from their from their host star um, with present um, telescopes. And in order to do that, you have to have not only a large telescope. Actually, it's larger if you go in the infrared. It doesn't have to be quite as large if you're in the in the uh, visible. It has to be a large telescope, and it has to. Um, have a coronagraph on it so that you can blot out the light from the from the bright star because it's like a million a million or a billion depending on what wavelength you're at times brighter and so it's like trying to find a firefly in a headlight right you can't can't do that um, and um, and it has to be in space because um, you you can't get the resolution on Earth even even with the the um, the deformable mirrors they have to try to do adaptive optics on Earth, you can't get a, a small enough angular resolution in the sky on Earth. So we're talking about a very large space telescope with a coronagraph on it. You know, in, in fact, you know, the, the biggest one we have is James Webb, right? James Webb, um, mm-hmm. but the coronagraph on it um, is not the best coronagraph for doing this. It, it was it's under it was underfunded, is what it was. They didn't have the funding to put the coronagraph you would have needed on there. Um, and James Webb is, what, six and a half meters wide, and we were looking at for something that was 21 meters wide. Um, oh, wow. So, so yeah. we, we, wanted, we wanted something, you know, really... <laughs> so it's, it's kind of similar to James Webb, but it's, it's more specifically designed for the, uh, for the exoplanet problem. Exoplanets, yeah. yeah. Great, wonderful. So you're in the research mode. What is, I asked long-term goals over here. So what's a good time frame to think about this becoming a real mission and <laughs> think long-term? I don't know. You know, we're, we've been talking about roadmaps for, um, for development. Um, and, so right now we're kind of uh we're kind of in the stage where we have a an optical design we have ray tracing on the computer we have a little model a computer model of how it works just to show how the optics work for it um the next steps beyond that would be to make a physical model to show that you can actually make such a thing you know it's not just a theory on your computer that actually something can be made um the next Step after that would be to make a balloon flight where you, um, or it could be any, uh, some kind of a a sort of pathfinder mission, you know, that maybe we're looking at maybe science cases with binary stars or with star forming disks or centers of quasars or something that's brighter and easier to do with a smaller, uh, less money <laughs> operation where we can kind of try out the technology and see if the technology works for that kind of a thing. Um, and, you know, assuming that it all works through those stages and you never know, right? This is, this is research. <laughs> if we knew, <laughs> we wouldn't be doing research. So, you know, we're trying to make sure that, that each of these things kind of works. And, and then, and then the, the hope is that, you know, a decade down the line, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, there are technology hurdles to come up with. They talk about, I've been learning about TRL levels, transition readiness levels, TRLs. Yeah. Um, that NASA has, this is very low. I mean, no one has a 20 known as a a 10 meter grading out in space. 
right? So you have to prove that you can make such a thing, um, that you can put it out in space, that you could deliver it to space with it, you know, going through all of the the uh, the issues that, that you go, go through getting up in a rocket, being shaken and a high G and all that. I mean, there's all these things to, to prove that you could can do. So it's a, it's kind of a, a road to, to get to the level where they say, okay, we can imagine making a telescope like that and putting it in space. Mm-hmm. So, so it's know. fascinating how the vastness of space and the work that you all are doing, uh, thinking about distant futures, both space and time, can offer insights into the challenges here on Earth. So I want to start making some connections between this kind of work. How do you find your findings, especially with your other project, the Milky Way uh, at Home project, how do those intersect with what's happening on Earth and global sustainability and the sustainable development goals? You know, it, it's been interesting to me to kind of see how I do science and how people do work in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. Um, my my husband uh, has been, he kind of left his academic career to follow me, right? <laughs> so he's worked in a lot of different industrial positions and mm-hmm. academic positions and finance and all kinds of other places. And it's, it's been amazing to me to discover that what he does at work every day, no matter where he goes, is almost exactly the same as what I do at work every day when I go to do science, that we're using the same software programs, we're using the same machine learning techniques, we're using the same you know communication methods, we're mm-hmm. using the same database <laughs> you know, we're using all the same tools. Mm-hmm. And and I think that um, you know, sometimes the need to do the science drives the technology, and sometimes the technology comes ahead of the science. But um, I think that that having people out there trying to do things that nobody knows how to do uh, is really part of how we drive our whole society. It's all integrated in together. You know, when we were working, when I was working on the Sloan Digital Sky Survey as a a postdoc, um, we were working with the manufacturers of object-oriented databases, which were just being invented at that time. And so the scientists, the astronomers working on the Sloan survey were helping to push the design of databases that were being developed commercially. And the same thing happened later in how you store data in databases that we were working with Jim Gray at Microsoft, um, who was doing research, which was then, you know, pushed back into how people do databases in general. And and it's kind of been that way at every level. It's in the hardware. You know, we have astronomers that have been working on how to make CCD cameras, which are everywhere. I mean, cameras are now everywhere with these kind of technology. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I feel like we've been – Throughout my career, I've been extremely involved in technology development and development that kind of goes beyond the science and that the technology also feeds back into the science, a very connected uh, ecosystem in how how progress gets made. And, yes. and I see that also with my students, right? I mean, I'm at a university, and so I'm training undergraduate students, I'm training graduate students. Um, they're learning the technology. I have... 
a lot of students from Milky Way at home who did their research in astronomy, either um, as undergraduates or as PhD students even, and they go out into industry and they use those skills to get jobs. No, you're absolutely right. The science and technology ecosystems are very symbiotic and support each other. Many of the things we take for granted today emerged out of a lot of NASA and other science. So okay. internet or uh, the work that DARPA was doing was sort of the progenitor of it. But I'm wondering, in this kind of uh, space research that you're involved in, what would the discovery of a exoplanet do <laughs> to humanity and our way well, of thinking? Our... Thing. This is another thing I always talk about. You know, I, it's always amazed me. My, my great-grandmother was born, you know, in the early 1900s, you know, right after, right after, maybe right around 1900. And it's always just, it's, it's mind-blowing to me to know that my great-grandmother grew up not knowing that the Milky Way galaxy existed. But I think it, it changes you as a person to know that you, you live on, a, on the Earth, that the Earth goes around the Sun, that the Sun goes around the Milky Way galaxy, that the Milky Way galaxy is in a group of galaxies, and that you're in this, you know, enormous universe that is evolving. Mm. I mean, I, it, and it, it, it's it's irrefutable that the universe is evolving, that it's changing with time. Um, I think there's more room to negotiate than we usually admit in terms of how it begin began and how it's going to end. But the fact that it's changing with time is irrefutable. And, yes. and so I think it kind of changes us as people to, to, to kind of have an idea of, you know, where we are in the universe. Yeah. So there are two kind of lessons that I can take out of that. One is it humbles us to know that we are part of a Milky Way, which is part, one of the billions of galaxies out there. So yeah. we are so small. And and it also gives us a more intimate understanding of Earth and its fragile fragility. So it might make us more sensitive to the sustainability challenges that we face. So that could be one lesson. And I'm wondering whether some of this innovation that is happening in the curiosity space might be transferable to solving these problems of sustainability. Because in some ways, if we don't protect what we already have and we keep down going down the path with climate change and biodiversity loss, we won't have the luxury of doing curiosity investigations. So is there a way of making a connection between the two? I actually woke up this morning. <laughs> And uh, and I was reading the newspaper, and I was reading about how the aquifers are going down, and actually it is completely um, consistent with conversations that I've had at weddings with people when I was visiting Denver. You know that their aquifer is going down, and how yeah. agriculture is is really a big driver in that. And mm -hmm. I was reading this whole study that the that the New York Times had done on the problem with aquifers, and I was thinking, you know, I am completely all over being able to do this analysis. Mm, oh, interesting. I, I completely am well-trained to do this kind of, kind of research. And, um, and I was kind of wondering if I really should be spending part of my time um, working on sustainability issues because 
I do feel like we've been for the last hundred years really overusing a lot of things. Hmm. And, um, you know, so I, I feel like that the training that I get, the training my students get, it really does put us in a position to solve these problems. I'm not sure that, I mean, astronomy research in general um, is usually a longer, it's a very long time between when you are researching something that's purely uh, intellectual to the time where it makes a difference in people's lives on earth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's hard to know exactly when that's going to happen. I mean, usually it does in the end. I mean, maybe I'm going to find a dark matter particle and maybe that dark matter particle and understanding how the dark matter particle works is going to be able to make us go through space time and warps, you know, I don't know, but that's not going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, um, a lot of it, I think is political that, you know, even when scientists come up with, uh, you know, point out there's a problem and maybe come up with solutions, there's a lot of uh, political backlash to doing it because, you know, some people, this, I always talk about, you know, when I was in, in elementary school, they found a hole in the ozone layer. (laughs) You know, we're getting irradiated, you know, through this hole in the ozone layer and the scientist says, here it is, here's the problem is chlorofluorocarbons and you got to do something about it. And the government said, okay, and they, they got rid of them and now the problem's going away, you know. Mm-hmm. But the same thing didn't happen with climate change. Right. And, and, and the problem is that climate change was not just, you know, one chemical or one small part of the economy. It's everything, you <laughs> it's know. It's carbon, it's the... <laughs> Not basic. everything. It's everything you're doing. You know, it's it's all of this. Mm-hmm. All of this has got to change. And 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 the thing that made it a lot harder is that some people kind of benefit from the climate change mm-hmm. and some people really lose. And so so not everybody is completely on board with, oh yeah, this is something we gotta to solve today because some people, you know, not, yeah. not a big deal. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. seem like it's big. It's kind of hard for me to believe that anybody <laughs> is escaping it at this point. But a lot of people thought they were right. <laughs> Escape. Um, it, it's a problem for everyone, and it's sort of surprising how. I, I think there's a kind of fantasy. Uh, there's a book by uh, Douglas Rushkoff called "The Escape Fantasies of Billionaires" or something like that, and. <laughs> And and apparently he is a communications uh, researcher and he was invited by billionaires, a, a dozen of them, uh, to talk about communications and climate change and so on. And when he arrived at this very fancy location, wherever it was, the only questions that they asked him was, can you tell us whether technology will be available that allow us to leave Earth and live somewhere else. So he called it the escape fantasy of billionaires. Yeah, it's all connected. I mean, we are discovering that the number of ski days in Colorado are shrinking because of particulate matter that is coming from Chinese power plants. So, I mean, the connectivity of the world weather systems is known to science. And I'm very intrigued by your the point you made about... Uh, senior scientists like you who've done a lot of interesting work have the training uh, 
to uh, really study and, and develop solutions. What do you think is holding them back? Uh, I talk, talk to a lot of scientists in their like a post-tenure and like over 50 years of age who are starting to feel like they can contribute more to mm-hmm. these sustainability challenges. You have some thoughts on how that some of them might be encouraged to bring their intellectual horsepower to bear on these challenges, even though some of them are political and economic challenges. I think for me, I mean, I'm over 50. I mean, I'm right in your your demographic there. Um, I mean, for me, it would be an opportunity. Yes. What, you know, an opportunity has to be made available. If someone came and asked me, would you come and work with us on this? I'd probably say yes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, keep that in mind. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's hard for me sitting in, I guess I, I would feel that, for me sitting in my lab with my background, trying to redo everything that people who have been working in sustainability or energy generation, energy, new energy methods, or people who have really been working on this for a while, that I wouldn't think that me sitting in my lab by myself, that I'm going to outperform everybody else, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there has to be, um, there has to be an opportunity where I can see that my skills and my background uh, my resources can be put to use uh, in yeah. a way that um, that actually, you know, leverages uh, some kind of change or more understanding. Mm. But yeah, I mean, if an opportunity came up. You yeah. Know, so the I- collaboration that you are implying is, of course, a very important piece of science. We've been doing it in science for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But we also have disciplinary silos <laughs> so that you are an astronomer, I'm an economist, never the twain <laughs> shall meet. Right. So uh, uh, how do we break down silos and create these multidisciplinary or what I'm calling transdisciplinary approach to science where the focus is on solutions, uh, dealing with uh, real world problems and happening to engage everybody that is uh, how can we overcome these, and especially at universities? Universities have departments and disciplinary-oriented departments, whereas what needs to happen, as you just pointed out, is for an astronomer to be able to walk with the political science and economists and engineers who are doing energy or agriculture or what have you. Mm-hmm. So the way I have uh, seen this uh, successful before is somebody has to want it enough to pay for it. Mm. And and what they what what you have to pay for is um, is not not a whole research program or a whole research center. You ha- you have to pay for um, the meetings, and it, and it takes a lot of meetings. So you 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 pay for people to come together and talk and each present what they do and get to know each other and learn each other's languages. And and that so universities I, I've been through exercises like this at uh, Rensselaer you know that, that they occasionally come up with the idea we want people to get together and <laughs> then they fund some um, seminars that program where they bring people together and uh, have them talk about their research and they put people in the room who might collaborate and I actually did get 
I worked with, um, I mean, Milky Way at home yeah. was built as a collaboration between me and three other computer scientists at Rensselaer. And that came out of one of these programs where they had um, me come up and talk about my research and the problems I'm having. And then someone else got up and talked about their research and the problems they're having. And when I talked about my research, one of the machine learning guys um, said, well, you know, I think we can solve the problem. Um, and he uh, said he thought that he could use the computer science techniques to solve that problem. And we didn't originally plan to use volunteer computing time. <laughs> it wasn't the original, but the graduate student just sort of, it was around and the graduate student just sort of made it and it came into, came into being. Um, but, but, you know, and it's not so easy for computer science faculty to talk to astronomy faculty in general. Um, but it, it took so, a while of just kind of talking to each other to figure out, you know, what they knew and what I knew that could work together to build Milky Way at home. Yeah. And so say a little bit more about Milky Way at home. What does it do? <laughs> yeah, that's a really fascinating project. Um, Milky Way at home is a, uh, it's a volunteer computing project that, that allows you to, it, it actually, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the Milky Way galaxy. That's just what I use it for. But the mm -hmm. infrastructure that we built is built on originally actually the SETI project. <laughs> the, search, mm -hmm. the search for extraterrestrial life that was going on in the 70s, they were taking radio telescopes and putting them at stars and hoping to find, I don't know, television transmissions from other planets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and this uh, went for a while, and then the, the NSF said they weren't going to fund it anymore because it wasn't very likely that that was going to come to anything. So they built their own institute and they still took radio and got donations and took radio data, but then they had no way to analyze it. So they built this platform that they could take little pieces of the radio data and send a little piece to each person's computer in the, in the world. They built this thing so people in the world could contribute their computer time and analyze little pieces of data. So um, that infrastructure still exists, and we were able to use it um, but we had to put some a layer on top of it. And the layer we put on top of it is is something that allows us to optimize parameters. So if we have a bunch of data and we have a model that has like parameters in it that you can adjust, you know, knobs to turn in your model, and then you have an, a, an algorithm that says, given this model with these knobs turned this way, how well does that fit this data? So it's some sort of metric that says, you know, how well does this fit? Then what we can do is we can send a job to each person in the, in the world who volunteers their time. We send a job and then we ask them, how well does this set of knobs fit that data? And they give us back a number. And then we have this layer above it that, that kind of figures out, well, what's the next, what's the next set of things we should try? given that all these people have given this data back. And so there was a graduate student who got his PhD thesis writing that layer that says, how well, how, given, given that we know this, what are the next ones we should try? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so we send it out and we, so we, we fit data. And this, this was a really big issue because before this data explosion that we've experienced, before we yeah. had all these sensors and getting all this data, um, we had so little data that we could fit the whole 
outer part, you know, the density function for the Milky Way halo could be fit with three numbers. We had three <laughs> knobs to turn. Mm-hmm. And then, then when we had millions of stars to fit, suddenly those three knobs weren't enough. <laughs> there was so many more. We had, we had tons and tons of, of parameters, things we can fit. And, um, and it just took more computer time than existed to fit all those parameters. And that happened across every area of science and every area of industry that there's so many things out there to fit them all um, is, is really difficult. And so we were kind of solving a problem that was of the time, you know, how are we mm-hmm. going to do this with our computing power? Yeah. And, and so this issue of getting people from different fields together, which was the genesis of your project, uh, part of it can happen within the context of a university like you did within Rensselaer, but a lot more of it needs to happen across institutions yeah. and across the world. Right. Uh, especially in the space sciences. I've been reading in the background what China is doing in space, yeah. for example, and the need yeah. to work with. So uh, funding is important, and I hope some funding agencies will listen to this podcast <laughs> and understand the importance of bringing people together in these kind of workshops or conferences or what have you. Uh, but can you say something more about uh, how do we bridge barriers or reach out to other nations? Mm. Uh, and I know you've done some work with other countries, so maybe you can draw on that experience. And then I'll ask you a follow-up question on that. Okay. I, I've done a lot of work in China. Um, yeah. In particular. <laughs> I, there were there was a bunch of years there where I was going between two and four times a year to China. Um, I actually got a fellowship from China to uh, to stay there for a longer period of time. I had my little kids there. And so I learned what it's like to live in Beijing. Do you or, speak Chinese? I actually took um, two semesters of Chinese at Rensselaer when I started the project. Mm. But the main thing, the main one of the main reasons that I took the class was because uh, I was trying to help organize the a Chinese um, astronomy survey, and um, I couldn't even say their names. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's really it's really difficult to say, oh, yeah, I think so-and-so would be good to work on such-and-such when you can't even say what their name is. Hmm. And um, (laughs) (laughs) um, so I took enough Chinese that that I could kind of navigate that kind of uh, environment. And But for anything that required um, detailed knowledge, they actually had uh, one of the astronomers would translate for me. You know, they would be do do real-time translating of uh, some of the meetings. So in the United States... Um, the feeling in a research community is of tightening the belts. Um, that although we still spend, you know, more money than other nations, it's a decline. Um, that that we're always pulling back. We're always doing less, a little less, and a little less. And the whole feeling of doing less is different. Um, so we in in uh, in China when I'm there, the every year they have a little more they the the scientists get paid a little bit more um they get i mean during the the years that i was there i mean i would if, i mean if i go maybe three months later everything would have changed in the three months i was gone everything would be different you know mm-hmm. you know all of a sudden people would have cars 
they none of them had cars and then all of a sudden three months later they all had cars and then they all moved to a nicer apartment and then they all had health care you know and all the it, it was um you know and they they have more opportunities they're getting jobs you know there's a mm. future they can get opportunities they can work on big projects they can you know they're growing things it's a grow you feel different when it's growing even if it mm. hasn't grown as much as we are it feels mm. different to be in a growing thing than in a belt tightening thing. Yeah. And so they're, they really are they're starting to retain a lot more of their talent, you know, mm. that, that it, we, we even maybe start to lose some people to China because there's opportunities there that you can't get here. Yeah. Um, you want to build a, you want to build a telescope, you know, it's going to be a really hard road here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they're, they're like, oh, cool idea. Let's run with it. Here's some money. You know, it's just yeah. different. So could it, could it be that the fact that uh, the country is run by engineers, I'm told that 95% of members of the Politburo in China are science and engineering background, whereas 95% of our leadership in Congress is lawyers or business background. Could, could that explain some of the differences in approach or, or differences in evolution of science in these two countries? I think in the U.S., people are very insulated from what goes on in the rest of the world. And, and they don't really understand the suffering that the world has had while we have not, not worried about it. And we've, been, we've had it really good for a long time mm-hmm. in this country. And and I and when I when you, <clears throat> when you go to China and you see the explosion in growth and you see how people who don't have dental care are starting to get dental care and people who don't have cars are starting to get cars and and that they want to have everything we have. And you look at how many of those people there are there. <laughs> mm-hmm. You realize if everyone in China wanted a chair there'd be no more trees. You know. Wow. And, and it's, it's, it's like, we can't, we have for a long time been living at this enormously high standard of living where we use a huge number of resources. And when other areas of the world now want to be at that level, we can't all just stay there doing that the same way we've always done it. And, and I don't think that conversation has been had in this country and it hasn't been had for political reasons. And so I kind of feel it's not so much the fact that they're lawyers or the fact that they're engineers. I, I think it's the, this difference in, in China, they're trying to grow and they mm-hmm. care about gro- green growth. They have a lot more, a lot greener growth uh, plans than we do because they have to. I remember um, years ago, I, I had this like epiphany. I'm like driving down the street and I see on one side of the road, there's this huge housing development, huge houses. Every house has a swing set behind in the backyard. Um, and there's nobody there. Nobody in this entire housing development, you know, and across the street, there's a little strip mall and the strip mall has a little piece of it. There's a daycare center 
And there's like tons of kids jammed into this little daycare center. In the back of it, there's a little little yard with a, a swing set in there and 50 kids all over the swing set. And I, and I was like, you know, I know this because I, I lived in the suburbs one time. I said, all the people who live in those gigantic houses are out working to pay for this gigantic house. So then that and sending their kid to this daycare across the street where all jam- and, you know, we have to think about is that really how we want to live? You know, and how much resources are we really using to live this way? And is that making us happy? Um, I, I, uh... <laughs> that is very profound. You know, absolutely. I think we, there's a reckoning that is starting to become apparent to some people. And I think scientists are at the front line of understanding that the old, it's not even that old lifestyle. It's just like last 50 to 100 years. I mean, our great grandparents didn't live the profligate lifestyle that we are living, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we call this progress. Some people mistaken it for happiness, I guess, because a lot of people are pursuing that dream. Mm-hmm. And so, how how does science sort of bring an approach to understanding what it means to live a good life without being such a burden on this planet? Is there a role for science? And, and I'm not talking about political science. We know there is a role for them and economists, but for hard yeah. scientists. So I, I think that I, I felt when I was going to China that I was an ambassador, you know, and, and in both directions. That, you know, the Olympics, you talk about the Olympics, and uh, Olympics is all about, you know, countries coming together and having a sport and exchanging, you know, views from different countries. And I think that, um, that, that in astronomy, uh, we do that too. And astronomy is kind of a good one. Not so much the space part. (laughs) Uh, NASA, NASA makes really stringent rules about having any kind of collaboration with China. Um, but but for the non-space technology part of astronomy, nobody cares if I tell them where the stars are or they tell me how they measure galaxies or I give them software for, for analyzing data about images. Nobody cares. And so it, it's, a really, it's a really good um, sort of way because it, when I went to China, I mean, I answered a lot of questions. They wanted to know about religion. They wanted to know about how we live. They wanted to know you know, how, what we're like. And, and I learned a lot about what it was like to live in China. So in some ways, you know, scientists can bridge a gap. And then I'm talking to somebody, I mean, I do this when I go to other countries and people ask me if I like to, to go on vacation. Vacations are fun, but it's actually, I, I learn a lot more and it's a lot more interesting for me to travel as a scientist because I'm connecting with people who are just like me, but live in a different environment. Um, And so I find out, you know, from real people uh, what it's like to be in the countries that they live in. And, um, and I think that, that, that getting that information out from scientists, I don't think it comes out very much, but Mm. I think we gain a lot of knowledge about the world because of how much we travel and how much we talk to real people in other countries who tell us what they really think. Um, And, uh, 
and then you know getting that knowledge out but from from what scientists learn from their travels i think doesn't happen so much yeah and i think science has as an institution uh does its work through conferences and meetings where there are opportunity for scientists from different countries to meet but having led a a big science network called future earth for several years and establishing its secretariat i realized that those institutional mechanisms are biased in favor of already advanced industrial societies and a lot of the science is happening there most of the science is funded by them but it does not move sufficiently to developing countries particularly poor countries to me it it is sort of a big waste of human intellectual power to just fund and support one one set of and undoubtedly they are very bright and they are more advanced because of the resources they've had but do you have thoughts about how we might be able to bring more equality and social justice if you will we scientists don't talk about these terms too often but we need to think about how it might apply to ourselves and our institutions so is social justice i mean uh in equality uh, are important to me as a person and to most scientists that i've met um but i i also like to think in terms of what drives people to do things and so i i think that the question that i want to ask um about collaborating with uh developing countries is you know what's in it for each side how can you make how can you make a uh, a collaboration that is good for everybody because if it's not good for everybody then somebody's going to leave and and not not follow through with whatever uh and china actually was intentional about these collaborations i mean they they put money into big projects um in order to get people like me to go there so they have a carrot right there i have this money i'm going to build this big project we're going to get experts from around the world to come out here and work with us on it and and we're going to put the money in to build it and then you know and they're going to build their technology programs that way it was very smart mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. smart money for mm-hmm. them and uh I, I did at one time try to work with the the navajo but we were working with them uh trying to get government funding to build a, a telescope on a mountain top on their land so what we would get is the the land and what they were and what they wanted in return was economic development and education and in the end it ended up going nowhere because the people we were working with uh got pushed out and someone who didn't want to work with us got pulled in and, and the mm. whole thing kind of kind of uh kind of fell apart because yeah. now now no the sides didn't want the same thing anymore but um but if you really want to want to try to build a sustainable um future and you really want to lift people up there's got to be some kind of mutual benefit involved yeah 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 there's a lot more to be talked about on this topic we're <laughs> <laughs> just getting started but i i know we're at the end of our time and i wanted to thank you Thank you for tuning in to today's enriching discussion on managing sustainable futures. 
We hope you found our conversation with Dr. Newberg as inspiring as we did. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform to stay updated with more insightful episodes. For additional content and information, please visit our website at msfutures.net.